With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Today on Backroom Politics. Russia's out of the G8. SCOTUS hears the Hobby Lobby Obamacare case. Does Washington, in fact, ignore the public priorities of the American voter? And how has six years turned the Euro view of Obama from hero to meh? This and tell me a story today on Backroom Politics. Live from Shelley's Backroom. 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. Good afternoon out there in Radio Land. It's Tuesday. That means it's time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Joining me as they do every Tuesday to my left, he is the former eight-term member of Congress representing the 2nd Congressional District of the great state of Washington. He is the Congressman Al Swift. Hello, Congressman Al. Hello. How are you today? I'm doing fantastic, and to my 11 o'clock, he is the former Ford Chief for then, Congressman Gerald R. Ford. He is the former Vice President of Government Affairs for the National Broadcasting Corporation. He is the Honorable Bob Hines. Hi, Bob. Hi, Justin. Glad to be here. And directly across the table from me, as she is every Tuesday, she is the former General Counsel for the Homeland, House Homeland Security Committee under Betty Thompson, former Obama appointee as General Counsel to the Maritime Administration. She's the Honorable... Denise Krepp. Hello, Denise. Hello, Justin. It has stopped snowing. It has stopped snowing, yes. amazingly. And to my one o'clock across the table, he's fresh back from his grand tour of California. He's the former Undersecretary of Commerce who served under last count four presidents. He's longtime Senate staffer and a very handsome fellow at the Stimson Center. He is the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello, Justin. Nice to be back. Welcome back from California. And to my right, he is the former Executive Director of the Democratic Party of the great state of Maryland. He's longtime watching insider Carl Dubin. Hello, Carl. Hello, Justin. We have got a jam-packed show for you today, but let's get started with what's happening out in the Netherlands. Right now, in case you have not seen, the president has landed and started talks with his G8 or G7 colleagues, and apparently their first act of business is to suspend... Russia from the G7 or G8. 
this is supposed to be a economic sanction and a tax and a finger pointing way by the G7 members. And the real question here, and Alan, I'll start with you, is does Putin really give a rat's behind? He does, actually. Uh, not enough to change anything in Crimea, but he worked really hard to get into the G8 in the first place because the G the G8 is for the great big developed democracies and he desperately wanted to be considered a great big strong developed democracy he really wasn't that developed and we're learning we we, we knew he was not really a, a a true democracy and we're being reminded of that daily so for him is this so humiliating that he's going to change anything he's doing? No, but this this stings. This stings in some real ways. But, uh, you know, Bob Hines, when we look at the Russian response to this, uh, the Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, came back and said, basically, uh, we don't care. It's unimportant to us. We've got tons of energy. We've got tons of of land. We've got supportive population. Uh go pound salt. But at the same time, internally, they've got to be looking at the fact that they've got a failing economy, their ruble is almost close to worthless, and quite frankly, the only thing they have is a stranglehold on energy flowing into Western Europe. I mean, is this just for show, which obviously it is, but can they sustain this show long term? As long as Europe needs all the energy that they get from the Russians, the Russians will be able to continue. It may not it may not be easy, but it will be it will be there. I tell you what I would if I wanted to do something that would get the world's attention. I think if if, if I wanted to really uh, embarrass the Russians in effect, I think one of the things I would try to do, and I'm not sure who ought to be trying to coordinate this. I, you know the the World Soccer Cup comes up in I think 2018. It's going to be in Russia. I take it away from them. That would really embarrass them in front of the whole world. It'd be a nice move. Especially in light of the fact that soccer is much more important everywhere else but in the United States. Yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm for football. Yeah. <laughs> but as expected, Congressman Al, uh, Putin came out during that. Now, we should clarify. This meeting of the G7 or G8 is actually surrounding a nuclear security summit that had been long scheduled in the Netherlands. It included nuclear armament drills, proliferation, non-proliferation discussions, etc. cetera. Uh, but they took it upon themselves to say, hey, we're all together. Let's kick these guys out of the clubhouse. And they did. Putin, to that extent, said, uh, and he, it was quoted by Lavrov, saying, quote, if our Western partners believe the format has exhausted itself, we don't cling to this format. Again, just kind of shutting the finger at them. Is that a smart move economically for the Russians? Well, what, what other move has he got? You know, uh, we, we may have finally come up and done something that he cares about. And the last thing he's going to do is saying, oh, my, you've hurt my feelings and uh, you, you've really, really hurt me. And we're going to pull out of Crimea. It, it would, yeah, he's, he, he is going to say, this doesn't bother me. And that's what he's saying. Uh, I think probably uh, Alan is right, that it does hurt him to some degree, uh, and to that extent I'm glad we did it. But uh, his uh, kind of shining it off as not important is, I think, purely uh, fiat. And by the way, if you want to join the discussion, you can tweet your questions to us at 
Backroom Politics, or you can email your questions, justin at backroompolitics.org, or you can call us toll-free. Switchboards are open, 877-662-3713. Again, that number is 877-662-3713. Denise Krepp, uh, you, you, you've been around the Homeland Security Committee quite a bit. You've been around uh, as a member of, a former member of the Coast Guard. This, to me, at least personally, doesn't seem the right venue particularly when we're talking about nuclear arms, a nuclear security summit, to tell the Russians to go pound salt. Was this another bad timing incident on not only the White House and the State Department, but on the G7 members as a whole? No. No, I, I think it's one of the quivers that we have that we're able to use. Um, the question is going to be whether this will be enough and whether we'll have to take additional steps, and those additional steps will be determined based off of the next steps that Putin takes. I mean, if this is just the Crimea, this is just the Crimea, but if he starts trying to annex additional properties that the USSR, and I'll say the USSR, used to have, then I think we're going to have to start rethinking what our strategy is vis-a-vis -vis ourselves and this new country, whatever it may be. In, in addition to which, uh, we didn't have the uh, good fortune to be able to pick the timing. If you're going to do it, you had to do it now. Uh, because circumstances dictated the time. Alan Moore. Yeah, it, 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 as, as, as fate had it, um, the world, the, the, the G7 leaders were together. So what better opportunity? Usually they wouldn't be together, especially if they were going to be together in Sochi in June. Um, they were together. They could, they could sit around a table, make this judgment collectively, and announce it, and and they will have a G7 meeting in June in Brussels. So they've all blocked these dates out on their schedules. They will continue to do that. Now, typically the host country lays, has, has a big say in laying out the agenda. It's done in cooperation with the others, but, but the, the host country always has one initiative that they sort of take the lead on. Well, uh, there's still plenty of time to figure out how to deal with the absence but of, the same time, of Russia, and they will have their meeting in Brussels in June. But at the, yeah, I mean, at the same time, along with canceling this, uh, they're also looking at other economic sanctions. But, they, but surprisingly, the G7 allies got together, and in a joint statement, they, they said, quote, we strongly condemn the, Russia's illegal attempt to annex in contravention of international law and specific international obligations, the region known as Crimea. As, uh, Crimea. There seems to almost be, in other parties in the global community, some are saying, hey, this G7 group, there's a little bit of hypocrisy of saying, hey, what they did was quote-unquote illegal, particularly, again, as we said in previous shows, the issue of Iraq keeps coming up with some of these players, particularly with China and some of our APAC partners. Well, the, the, the Putin himself cites what he considers to be hypocrisy, and let's acknowledge that the U.S. and others don't have entirely clean hands. I will remind everybody this. No one else has annexed land. And the, there, was, there was a case. We've, we've, uh, we've, the U.S. has been critical, for example, of this bogus, uh, fast, uh, referendum on whether Crimea should should join Russia that came about in a matter of literally less than about two weeks. And one of the things Putin says is, hey, you guys embraced a similar referendum in Kosovo 
um, uh, not that many years ago. But there were some parallels. The parallels aren't perfect. There was no annexation of land. The problem for the U.S. is... Let me just interrupt real quick. Was this an annexation of land? Because what it, it, it appears has happened is that the residents of the Crimean province inside the Ukraine took a what in their view is a lawful vote that said, we want out of Ukraine, we want back into Russia. Al, what are you doing? I am crushing ash. <laughs> oh, okay. Ash, A-S-H. Just want to make sure. Alan Moore. He would like to crush some ash in the conversation, <laughs> but that's rare anymore. Because uh, oh. <laughs> he's such wow. a nice man. Yes. And he just can't bring wow. himself to take advantage of all the many opportunities that present wow. themselves in that regard. table <laughs> under your beautiful blue sweater. <laughs> Anyway, back to the point, back well, to the conversation. Okay. So, so different countries have different constitutions that allow for, for votes of subgroups to do different kinds of things. The Ukraine constitution does not allow for the kind of vote that occurred in Crimea to be put together in a matter of days, barely even weeks. Um, so, to, and, and, and in the presence of foreign troops who are wearing uniforms that don't have all the Russian insignia on it, which is a whole other interesting subject, but the, the, this is not a well, carefully planned constitutional process of deciding somebody wants to separate, secede, and join something else. This was a very different thing altogether. So don't drink the Kool-Aid right, on me, that. All right, let me go to Denise Krupp, though. Denise, it is obvious Okay, at least by many media reports on both sides, both from reports out of CNN and both and out of uh, also RT, the Russian television network that's based here in Washington, uh, both of them seem to have public opinion in Crimea as supporting going back to Russia. To me, it sounds like it's the will of the people and that the G8 is trying to force their way back into a square peg into a round hole situation in the Ukraine. Well, I think you have to go back to what Alan was just talking about. I mean, an annexation in a perfect world means that people vote freely to decide to move. I would argue that when you have troops that are not your own, that are already in your country, that are carrying guns that are not your own, that have tanks that are not your own, that I wouldn't say that you know it was a free and uh, democratic vote. I would argue that there was some influence there, and that influence is what's in play. Bob Hines, I like the word influence. I, no pressure is what I'd call. Oh it. no, not at all. Uh, the um, the population of Crimea is a majority of, of Russian. That's the biggest group. But about forty to about forty percent of the population is not Russian. I mean, that's a real, and they obviously didn't vote at all because the approval rating was 97%, so that meant, that meant that the Russian population voted, nobody else did. Alan Moore? Well, yeah, and also if you're going to have a free and fair vote, you not only have notice, you do it under the, the laws of the particular country, you also leave room on the ballot to vote no. And then that was not an option in this particular case. You either voted for it or you didn't vote. Um, so th this, this, this was a sham vote. If there had been 
a, an, a, a, a vote, a referendum that followed an established procedure with international monitors, with fair notice, it's entirely possible that because of the population of Crimea, there might have been a vote in, in favor of, of seceding from Ukraine and joining Russia. We will never know. That's not what well, happened. Congressman Al, let me ask this question, though. You know, going back to Alan's point, if Russia were to say, okay, you know what, we'll give you this one, we will work with the international community and international body, whether it's the UN or the Jimmy Carter Center for Democracy, we pick one. If they were to say, we will redo the vote, but it's all or nothing. If they vote yes, even by one vote, they come back to Russia. Would that satisfy the American government? And do you think that would satisfy the G7 partners? I, I, I don't think it would, and I don't think it should. Uh, Russia has not demonstrated that it even knows how to run a free and fair election. Uh, and there's no reason that they're going to learn how to do it right now on this issue. So I, I would uh, think that that would uh, not be a good thing to do. Bob Hines. The Russian idea of a reasonable majority is 97%. I mean, that's the way all their elections are that way. That's everything they do. That's always everything is the way we want it. There's no way you're ever going to get a fair election in Russia until you change the entire structure. That's never going to happen. Alan Moore. Russia has Crimea now. The sanctions that have been imposed on Russia as a result are pinpricks, hurt a little bit, they sting some, but they are not in a moment going to cause Russia to rethink the situation in Crimea. The real question is, is there enough out there, is the G7 united enough um, to, to give Putin some pause in deciding, gee, do I want to make a move into eastern Ukraine? How active do I want to be in the Baltics? Do I want to expand what I'm doing in Moldova? Um, there are other places in the neighborhood that he cares about and we care about. I think the West has conceded that Crimea was an unusual case. Um, it's got our notice. We're going to let it happen with these, with these limited sanctions. The Europeans are not in a position because of their energy dependency and, and a general hesitation anyhow and the fact that there's a, 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 a number of different countries that are involved in, in the EU, 28 I think, um, that they're going to still be cautious and careful and, and probably frozen and uh, as well as being dependent. So they're not champing at the bit saying, come on, America, bring in some planes and tanks. Let's kick some ass. That is not how they think. That's not what they're going to do, and it would not be in their interest to do that. So I think what everybody's hoping is sort of this notion, Crimea's gone. Can we hold it there, stabilize the situation, and, and hold and, and keep, not provoke Putin further um, and not make ourselves look even weaker by not responding if he does take additional actions. But, Bob Hines, we have a situation right now where you have several European nations that import, according to an article in the Washington Post uh, today or yesterday, 
Several European nations import more than 90% of their energy from Russia, uh, which includes crude oil, natural gas, and refined product. Uh, at the same time, this weekend, you had uh, the Ukrainian foreign minister, Andre, um, oh, excuse me, uh, Andre, I can't remember his last name, and it's bugging the heck out of me. Uh, it has a lot of consonants. It, it does have a lot. That's uh, Zia. So, Foreign Minister Dechnia tells George Stephanopoulos that, quote-unquote, the prospect of war with Russia is growing. He further adds that, quote, we don't know what Putin has in his mind and what would be his decision. That's why the situation is becoming ever, even more explosive than it used to be a week ago. It almost seems that the Ukrainians are not helping the situation by provoking Putin into, you know, a, you know, don't you, you see the whites of their eyes situation? <clears throat> the Ukraine has been a failed country for some time. You know. How so? Well, they've had a corrupt government, uh, very corrupt, uh, and they have had a government that was, uh, you know, uh, willing to uh, abide by what, uh, you know, do what Ru Russia wanted them to do. When the public jumped up and said, we don't like it, and they, uh, the, the, the Russian puppet gov president uh, took off and left, went back to Russia, uh, the country, you know, basically was just stymied. But, Bob, we, we're talking about Ukraine. When you say that the Ukrainian government is a failed government, we're talking about the same Ukrainian government that NATO gave provisional associate uh, membership to. We're talking about a failed government that was entertaining entrance and the EU was allowing them to move towards entrance into that organization. Does that seem like the actions of two very established bodies, NATO and the, G and the, and the EU, of bringing in a failed government, especially with the, the eggshells that they're walking on economically over there? My impression was that they were, they were doing it because they thought that by moving, by bringing Ukraine more into the Western economy world, that they would become a, a, a more structured, a better country, a better government, and a more solid, a more solid, stable place. That's what they were looking for. That's what they saw. And I think Russia saw the same thing, and they didn't want that to happen. Carl Tubin. Well, <clears throat> first of all, the news this morning was is that there are <coughs> troops, uh, Ukrainian troops, on the borders. They're ill-fed. Uh, people are bringing food to them. People are bringing blankets to them. <coughs> it's a very weak army, but they're on the borders. Uh, Russia still has a lot of troops, and Russia is kind of looking. <coughs> I think it would be a tremendous mistake to Russia if they invaded the Ukraine. But we don't have, at this point, we don't have the, the troops, we don't have materials there, we don't have anything there to help them, which is a bad thing uh, as far as we are concerned. Alan Moore. Yeah, I think that, that we, uh, we, we didn't do Ukraine a great favor by making them think that they could join NATO. Um, uh, to join NATO, you actually have to 
be reasonably successful uh, in operating as a country, and they have not been very successful for a whole host of reasons, um, some of which is that they were undercut by, uh, uh, by Russia, some of, what, some of which was because they were ill-prepared, some of which was because they were mostly an agricultural center who never really learned uh, they're, they're kind of a, a, a of a microcosm of Russia, except that they don't have the, the the oil and natural gas. They don't build anything or make anything that the world wants, except they had grain, um, and and uh, and and they and they were unable to control the corruption after independence enough so that they could become functioning in in the way of a capitalist system. Um, or a functioning democracy, and then with a lot of undercutting activity and, and, and dependency for energy and other financial support on Russia, they've just not come very far. They are a very, very long way from joining either the EU or, uh, special, or, or, or NATO. Um, and, and, uh, and that was true even before Crimea was, was, uh, was taken from them. If, if Russia moves in, and there may be areas of eastern Ukraine where Russia can move with relative impunity like they did in Crimea. If they try to move beyond the east, maybe even in the east, I don't know, but certainly beyond the east, then you're going to run into a lot of armed resistance from, the, from Ukrainians, and what Russia doesn't want, it, you wouldn't think, is armed conflict inside Ukraine. Right. I, I recommend that folks look at what Norway is doing. It's a rather unusual country um, in the fact that it is the closest European country to Russia itself. It's, it's, uh, it's up in the it's northern part of Europe, and uh, they've had some very interesting relations with the Russians. Uh, you know, remember the Gary Power incident and the oops, yes, we weren't supposed to be where we were, but we were. You know. Those were some very interesting times for that country, and then they learned how to navigate between the United States and the Russians. And my guess is right now they're providing a lot of backroom chatter to the Ukrainians and others and saying, look, we understand what's going on. We want to help you financially because we do not want you to go to war, if for no other reason that the Norwegian government has the largest sovereign account in the world based off of their own oil products. So it's going to be in their interest to make sure that the Ukrainians do not go to war. It's also going to be in the interests of others in the surrounding area to make sure that they hold tight. And that by those, I am talking about those Baltic countries because they are getting a little bit jittery right now. Your Estonians, your Latvians, the Lithuanians, we're saying, hey, it isn't, you know, it hasn't been that long since we were part of this country, and it's in our economic interest to make sure that we keep you stable. And you know, it's going to fall like that. So. Look for the backroom chatter for the countries you're not hearing because they're the ones that are pushing the buttons right now. Carl Tuvin. The other thing is, when the vice president, uh, in the beginning of the week, went to some of these countries to, to try to, to you know, back them up, they were all jittery about what's going on. And, and Poland and other countries were in the same, same seat. Bob Lines. You know, if you can understand why so many of these smaller countries in Eastern Europe are scared to death. I would suspect that Poland, Lithuania, Estonia, Latvia, Moldova, um, every one of them has Russian populations in them, in their, in, their, in, their area, in their most eastern areas. Every one of them does. 
and if the Russians are just saying, well, if there's Russians there, we're going to go protect them. I mean, you could have the whole Eastern Europe would be a, would be a mess. It's, it's, it's very, I can just hear Putin say to now, well, look at this. I mean, you know, these people are Russians and they're being, dis, they're, they're, they're minorities and they're being abused. And besides, look at, besides, hey, Kiev was a, was a Russian city for over a thousand years. How come it isn't one now? And the Europeans are going to be very concerned about some of the other countries that have had ethnic tensions. I mean, you have the Catalans in Spain. You have what's going on in England and Scotland. You have what's going on in the Czech Republic. Uh, with the Slovaks, you have Hungary. I mean, they all have significant populations that are ethnically theirs that are not in their own countries. And if this spreads, or if even the hint of saying, you know, we can annex you or we can divide you, that is not going to be good for Europe as an entire region. Well, Alan, we're going to give you the last word. Yeah, one last thought. You know, there's a lot of history that's been written now in the last couple of weeks, and some of us who aren't huge uh, students of history are still interested, and and there's uh, we've all we've all heard of the name Neville Chamberlain and the man who is known as the Great Appeaser, the man who in 1939 um, went it went to uh, to Germany and discussed the German invasion uh, of an of an area in Czechoslovakia, of the then Czechoslovakia called the Anschluss, and where it was ethnic Germans. And much later, we said, gee, he was the appeaser. He's the guy who went along. And we needed to stand up and, and, and say no. And I, I'm reminded of that because I think, in a way, we're all appeasers now. We all kind of realize this stuff's really complicated. There's nobody saying, Putin is another Hitler. We've got to stop him for the millions he's going to kill. Let's, let's stop him now. No one's saying that. And I'm, not say, I'm certainly not saying that. But, it, but it's, it's interesting to think about this, this mystery guy, Neville Chamberlain, who everybody loves to to be critical of um, and think about with the, how, how the world is and its leaders are reacting to, to what Putin is doing, which is so similar to what the Germans were right. doing in 1939. At least Hitler didn't take off his shirt. <laughs> <laughs> that, that too is that we saw pictures of, but okay. With that sage piece of advice out of Congressman Al, we're going to take a break. When we come back, however, we're going to talk about the Supreme Court hearing today on the Hobby Lobby Obamacare contraception case. Big, big news coming out of the Supreme Court. We'll be back in two minutes. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom on Blog Talk Radio. Wow, a little bit of Fats Waller, Lulu back in town. And I, I tell you, when I am back in town or when any of my friends are back in town or, heck, when we're living here in town, we usually find ourselves down at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., right across from the National Press Club. Why do we come here? Well, they've got the city's best cigar menu, the most diversified with some of the best-known brands and some that you might even know, but might want to give it a try. Everything from Arturo Fuentes down to Zeno. You can go all the way from your $9 little petite girly flavored cigars all the way up to the 
Opus X Lost City. They have a cigar for everybody. Mild, medium, strong, heavy. However you want to smoke it, it's available here at Shelly's Back Room. Come in, have Bob, Na, or any one of the girls show you what the right cigar might be for your taste that evening. Again, Shelly's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. As Bob likes to put it, it is definitely the place to be. You can tell the mailman not to call I ain't coming home until the fall And again I might not get back home at all Lula's back in town yeah. Capital in Washington, D.C. Uh, live on Block Talk Radio. Hey, we got uh, during the break. We got a uh, a, a question from uh, Joe Crociata, who tweeted: England went to war over Poland in 1939. Is there any rational justification for the U.S. to follow suit in 2014 if Mr. Putin decides to protect, read, annex a Russian-speaking population within Poland's ex- eastern borders? Uh, I'm going to start with you, Alan Moore. Okay, so if he goes into Poland, well, the problem is that if he tries to go into Poland, it'd be like going and trying to go to, to Kiev, he's going to get an enormous amount of resistance. Poland is in NATO. We would have some duties to, to, support, uh, to, to support the Poles. Going to war with them, uh, you know, I, just, I don't see him doing that. I don't, that's, not his, that's not his next step. So it's a little bit of a kind of a... Of a of a of a straw man of a question. I, I, I do think though that the that the that this this question does raise this question. What other uh, arrows are in our quiver, and what would provoke us to jacking things up and us and the rest of Europe? Because we can't do anything without the rest of Europe, and and and, and shouldn't. Sad as that is. Well, not only can't we, but we don't have the military assets in Germany. I mean, I, I grew up in Germany uh, when it was West Germany. We were stationed in Heidelberg. We had friends in Mannheim, Würzburg, Kaiserslautern. I mean, you name it, we were all there to make sure that somebody couldn't go through the fold of gas again. They're gone, folks. They're gone. We've, we've given all of our assets away. They're, they're not there anymore. And if they go into Poland and we have to go in militarily... Wowzers. Yeah. We're about mm, to do point. a lot of airlifting. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. By the way, jo- thanks for the uh, question, Joe Carciata. By the way, you can ask questions at 
Backroom Politics on Twitter, or you can email me, justin at backroompolitics.org. Hey, we're going to change gears right now. Uh, the Supreme Court today heard the case of uh, Hobby Lobby v. Sebelius, uh, Sebelius being the Secretary of Health and Human Services, Kathleen Sebelius, where uh, basically the uh, Supreme Court heard whether the religious freedom, and this is according to a brief filed with the Supreme Court, courtesy of our friends the Washington Post and the SCOTUS blog, the issue is, quote, whether the Religious Freedoms Restoration Act of 1993, uh, which provides that the government shall not substantially burden a person's exercise of religion unless that burden is the least restrictive means to further a compelling governmental interest allows a for-profit corporation to deny its employees the health coverage of contraceptives which the employees are otherwise entitled by federal law based on the religious objection of the corporate owners. In short, basically, under Obamacare and under other provisions in federal law, the, you are required to provide medical coverage, including paid contraception uh, provisions for your employees. However, Hobby Lobby stipulates that it is against our religious beliefs. We will not participate, and you can't find us because it violates our it violates the religious freedoms. Congressman Al, I don't believe a business can have a religious conviction. Now, certainly the owners of the business can, and I would protect their right as individuals uh, to practice their religion as they choose. But I think the idea that if you happen to be a of a certain religion and you own a business, your religion necessarily flows to all the actions of that business. And in this case, I think it clearly does not. I mean, there's no telling. We're still waiting to hear back on, on the Supreme Court. However, reports are coming back this afternoon that several of the uh, Supremes were skeptical about the Obamacare position in all this and the position of Secretary Civilians. You're, Denise, you disagree. No, I, I have to agree with Congressman Al. I mean, historically, when you take a look at the division between religion and the state, it's always the, the courts have always looked at the person themselves. You know, you have a religious right. They've never decided that the company has a religious right, and from there, the company can dictate what it gives its employees. That that's never been the case law. It, it's always gone to the individual. Yeah, but Bob Hines, you know, when we, when we talk about this, I mean, obviously this is going to have big ramifications, particularly the, the, the bigger entities. I mean, not to say that Hobby Lobby isn't a very successful business, but you're talking about, you know, the Jesuit universities, i.e. Georgetown, Providence College, St. Joe's, your old alma mater, Cincinnati. Uh, you're looking at the hospital chains that are owned by everybody from the Seventh-day Adventists all the way up to the Catholic Church. Uh, if... if this is going to have big ramifications, but this also is another pinprick into the armament that, that Obama has been using in promoting Obamacare as the universal health program it should be, Bob? Well, this is a, this is a problem. As Al says, it's, you know, it's, it's hard to say that a corporation is a person. And, it, and I think that may be, because the law uses the word person. It doesn't use the word corporate structure. It uses the word person. And I suspect that that means that the decision of the court is going to be that the corporation, you know, is not a person and does not, does not have the rights under the law. That's yeah. probably what's going to happen. 
Now, mind you that, that, that when it comes to campaign finance, the Supreme Court has specifically said that a corporation and a, a labor union is a person, yeah. which I think is insane. Alan Moore? Um, I, I think that uh, that the court is going to decide that uh, in this particular case, these these privately held corporations, the, the the total ownership is with this one family that has these closely held views. They structure themselves as a corporation as a way to operate and do business. Um, we can argue whether this is a good thing or not in the United United. Uh, the, the campaign, uh, United Citizens case, United, Citizens United, excuse me, yeah. Citizens United case, or in this case, my hunch is, perhaps in part because of the the precedent, that the that the that the court is not going to simply say, nope, religious freedom in the First Amendment is not available to you guys in the in your operations as a company, but that's the first issue that that the court has to decide. Then the court has to decide if it has religious rights, and we can linger on that if we want to, if it has religious rights, what powers are available to it. What these companies have said, and this is important to understand, is we're believers in contraception. We pay for contraception, but the, but the Obama law, Obamacare, requires us to pay for 18 different kinds of contraception Therefore, we object to because we consider those to be abortions. Um, we don't like the, the, the morning after pill and we don't like IUDs. Those we don't want to pay for. You can't make us pay for what we consider to be an abortion. Denise, that's a, that's a different issue and that's an interesting, interesting one too. Denise Kraft. It could be a very interesting argument that based off of past court cases, I don't think they want to go there. I, I, I think they would much rather ignore that whole issue because that opens just Pandora's box room that they've stayed away from for years. Well, so remember, remember what they have already done. You you were making references to to Jesuit universities and Catholic hospitals. Those folks have already been given an out that's being challenged in court. But I think what the what the what the what the court is saying, and this was some of the questioning today, is, you know, why are you forcing on these people's uh, actions? that you're not forcing on Catholic hospitals. Why don't you give these people who can demonstrate uh, strongly held religious beliefs the same out that you're giving Catholic hospitals? Congressman Al. Well, <clears throat> let me make an argument that I don't believe, but I think it's a, it's a rational argument. And that is that, that if, it, if the Catholic hospital is by its is by its very nature is a religious body that happens to practice medicine, uh, and there are other things where if it's owned by a church, if it's owned by a religion, one could make the argument that that extends then uh, certain considerations that I that I don't think a uh, an individual owning a company can extend to it. Denise Kraft. Well, and I think. The Jesuit argument is a bit of a red herring because the courts have looked at the hospitals and they looked at other church-owned properties and said, okay, if you are purely church, a church entity, that's one thing. But when you start talking about hospitals that receive payment from the government for Medicare and Medicaid, now you are not purely a church-owned entity. Now you've got a lot more ties into the government. And that argument regarding uh, your, your, your rights 
has been diluted. But 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 Denise, so I mean, if you're going to give the church that kind of leverage, it it it, it puts the argument in a precarious in a precarious case because if you do have whether it's privately held or publicly held, in this case it's privately held, mm-hmm. Hobby Lobby's a family-owned business. Uh, the other attached cases are a furniture company in Pennsylvania owned by Mennonites. It, 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 puts, it puts the argument in a precarious case because these are people who, who wholly own these corporations. Right. They employ employees. When they are brought on, they are told these are the values that you abide by by being an employee. And at the same time, we, as an owner, as an employer, don't feel it's right. It goes against our religious beliefs. How do you put one and not the other? Because that enables people to say my religious belief is that women are not equal and that women should stay at home. I mean, that, that's where that but, argument but then goes that, to. Let me just, well, just jump in real quick because that, that, I don't think that's a fair argument, Denise, and because... It also includes veil contraception. It includes condoms. Viagra is covered by Medicare and Medicaid. It's not a contraception. It's an enhancement. The last time I talked to Al about it, he said, you know, it's not free. Let me say something about No, no, no. Let me clarify. Let me just clarify something here, real quick. For those on Radio Land, we are not promoting the idea that Congressman Al has to use erectile dysfunction supplements to enhance its being. We just get that out of there. You just don't understand the situation. Wow, this got completely <laughs> awkward real quick. This Congressman Al, these issues are very difficult. These are very sensitive issues. This is a family show. Congressman Al, let me get this back on. on okay, here. please. One of the things that we pretty well established that this is a very complex thing, <clears throat> and I think the fact that uh, a, a church, a religious organization, can own a business does that make a difference between that and somebody who merely is religious? Uh, and owns a business. That would have to be sorted out. But here's this. I, I, I wonder if you couldn't make the argument that your employees, if you insist on extending to them your beliefs, your religious beliefs, denying them, in this case, uh, abortion and and. Um, morning after pills and all of that kind of stuff. If you're not really treading on the rights, perhaps even religious rights, of your employees. And I think if you if you go down this route, if the Supreme Court should decide in favor of the the in favor of Hobby Lobby. In favor of the Hobby Lobby, then I think we're gonna have to go down and seek further and say, well what about the rights of the employees? Are, are you are you saying this is a very slippery slope? Well, I'm saying that it's not simple, and it's it, one thing leads to another, and pretty soon you're pretty damn deep in the weeds. Carl Tuvin. One thing, you, you know, you have a law that says, you know, that women can have all this, and then you have this this group coming in saying, no, we don't want to do that, and it's really kind of a, you know, what, what happens to the women who who number one might need this pill 
is a pill that they use uh, for other reasons. They, they use birth control pills for a whole host of things. And not the morning after pill. Not, not the morning after, after but I said birth control pills for, for a whole host of things. Which <clears throat> Alan Moore, go ahead. Yeah, it, I think it's, you know, one of the things we, we sometimes forget about the Supreme Court cases is that they, they are about the existing law, not just impressions that people get in, uh, in conversation and in news shows. And, and, a, and, a, and a, just a little piece of history is interesting here. In 1982, a bunch of Amish people said, we're not going to participate in Social Security. We're, we're going to take care of our own. And their employees said, we don't want it. And the, and the Supreme Court said, you're getting it. You're taking it. There, there are some cases where religious freedom is pushed aside for the, for the, for the betterment of, of the total society, and we need everybody in the Social Security system. Then in 1990, there was a case that really fed into this law that's really at, at issue now of some Indians who wanted to use peyote. And they said it's a religious belief. And the court said, you know something? It is so contrary to established law that's in the broad public interest that you can't use your peyote as, 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 a, as a piece of your religion. That led to the passage of this Religious Restoration uh, Reform Act, or whatever it's called. Um, and that law, which is now really at issue here, has these three tests that have to be made. I apologize for referring to my notes here, but I want to make sure that I get this correct. That that the government action has to be a substantial burden on the religious practice. So this really has to be offensive from a religious standpoint. That's one test. Two, the government must show that it has a compelling interest in forcing this behavior. And then three, the government has to show that its program is the least restrictive way to reach the particular goal. When you look at all three of those, you realize that the, that, that the government in this case has got some challenges. This is where this whole business of what they're doing for Catholic hospitals, for example, could arguably be applied in a particular case. You don't have to do it this way. Um, you can maybe show there's compelling interest, but you can't meet, you have to meet all three of the tests. You know, is, is there a real burden on somebody's religious beliefs? That's one. The court's going to wrestle with this, and it, and, and, and it will decide on the basis of history and the law, not just sort of first impressions. You know, you know Bob, uh, I was looking through, I was, I was looking through uh, an op-ed that was written last week by Rick Warren, who is the uh, pastor of the Saddlebrook Church out in California. Saddleback. Uh, Saddleback. I'm sorry, Saddleback Church in uh, California. A very profound religious figure in America. He's got the ear of many presidents, including George W. Bush and Obama. He gave the opening uh, uh, invocation at Obama's last inauguration. So he's definitely got some street cred when it comes to religious issues. His, the title of his op-ed was, If the Contraception Mandate Passes Through the Court, It Will Ruin a Core U.S. Ideology, which basically says that uh, you know, the religion is a way of life to the owners of these businesses and to many of its employees. Do you agree with that synopsis, that in fact, that if it does get through, this ruins a core U.S. ideology that's, that's perfectly set in the First Amendment? I wish I had an answer. I don't know. No, I don't. You, okay, well, wait a minute. Let me go to Bob, and then I'll go yeah. to you, Congressman. No, go ahead, Al. Congressman, go ahead. I, 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 I just don't agree. 
I, where I drew the line was obvious in my first remarks about this. I do not believe that a person's individual religious beliefs extend to their companies and corporations. And uh, therefore, I disagree with the uh, good reverend in that regard. Bob, did you have something you want to add? You know, we're getting to the, we're getting to the point where you almost say, we have to have a law that says that a company can, if it's, if it's ownership or it's leadership or whatever it is, has strong religious positions on something, then they can re they can tell people who want to be employed there that they can't be employed there unless they agree to those the rules. I mean that's what we're getting into. It's really weird because we're we're we are we're having a really difficult time in this country trying to you know give everybody an equal chance and equal opportunity and all that kind of thing. But we are also you know getting pretty close to telling people. You can't do something that your religion requires you to do because we don't want you to do it. Right, but I mean, you know, Alan brought up the three-pronged test, and the three-pronged test has also been used in different cases dealing with medical care. Um, certain religions don't believe that you should be operated on. Um, there were mm -hmm. other cases talking about schooling, and, and you know, should kids be forced to go to a public school or? because of your religious reasons, could you homeschool them? And the courts have consistently held that the, there is a government interest in this, which is why I, I want to repeat my, my thought that the government's going to say, you know, we respect your religious, your, your rights to have a religious position, but these are your employees that you are talking about, and your rights as an individual are not going to extend through the company to your employees. Your employees are going to be able to get the health care that is mandated by the president. But wait, but wait a minute. This brings up a very valid question, and I'm going to go to Alan Moore on this one. Pastor Warren asked this question, which I think is a fantastic question. Do Americans have the freedom to place our beliefs and ethics at the center of our business practices, or must we as Americans ignore them when we form a company? That's a very profound question, that that uh, Pastor Warren brings up that should be considered at least by the Supreme Court. Well, I think the court will. They they wrestle with this stuff. I'm predicting that they won't be unanimous in what they decide, whether it's on whether the 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 religious views of owners um, matter when they're when they're presented through a corporation and whether, in fact, the particular limits being talked about here uh, are going to be allowed. I was trying to think about some other situations. If, 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 the, if, if, the, uh, if the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, had said, um, you have to pay for euthanasia wherever it's legal, and a company said, not doing it. How would we feel if the, if if the ACA said you have to pay for abortion whenever it's legal? Um, you know, I don't know that it would have passed the Congress, but but I think that that people would say, "Wow, we've got all sorts of laws that say we don't we we can't use federal money for that. Private companies can cover uh, abortions if they choose. They do that now, and a lot of companies do, and a lot of companies don't." Um, this it's just in this particular case that, that we've got this new federal law with a new set of rights, uh, so-called, um, and some people are saying, 
No, never have, never will. Even though we're extremely generous to our employees and they love working for us, we're not going to do that. It's not a surprise to our to our uh, employees, and our employees have other options, at least in the case of these two companies when it comes to contraception. They have many other options, just not the ones that, that, that the leaders and owners of the company consider to be a, a form of abortion. But, you know, Congressman Al, you know, we look at the Hobby Lobby. We look at, uh, for example, Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A, privately owned company, well well loved by people who eat their chicken sandwiches, but they are closed every Sunday due to religious beliefs. It is something that the employees deal with. They, they are told that when they take employment with them. And, you know, basically what uh, the Greens, who own the Hobby Lobby, uh, and what the, uh, the, the board of Chick-fil-A believe is that the administration is imposing on these companies that they have no religious rights under the First Amendment, that they're exempting, that exempting them would be an imposition on their, or by exempting these companies, they would be imposing their religious beliefs on their employees. Does that have merit? No. I, I, I'm glad you finally got that out. I thought you were never going to make it. Well, a lot I of stuff I have to look at, Al. Just give me, work with me, work with me. I don't, I don't think it does. I remember my parents, when I was in junior high school, uh, talking about buying a little mom-pa grocery store that was a block from our house, and talking about they were, they were very religious Methodists. They didn't drink, they didn't smoke. And they were discussing among themselves, would, would we be able to, in good conscience, carry beer, uh, or carry cigarettes. And if we couldn't, could we make a go of it? Uh, and I, they never bought the store, so I never know how they worked that out. But it would seem to me the answer, if, if you want to try and run a store and not sell those products and run the risk of going broke, you can do that. That's quite different than owning a chain of stores and saying all of your employees are now going to have to do X, Y, Z. But, Denise, there's a fine line. You as a devout Catholic, me as a recovering Catholic, Bob, there's several recovering Catholics, uh, including a recovering Jew here at the table as well. I'm a recovering uh, Unitarian. <laughs> well, you're just out of the pocket altogether. You know, this, in fact, poses a very difficult question is, the, you know, as Rick Warren points out, and, and, and I just absolutely love this op-ed, it, it, he presents it both cases very fairly, but uh, Thomas Jefferson, he had a letter that he owned, and he states that Thomas Jefferson says that no provision in our Constitution ought to be dearer to man that, than that which protects the rights of conscience against the enterprises of civil authority. Basically, is if I own a successful business like Chick-fil-A or Hobby Lobby, do I violate the law as put out by Obamacare or do I violate the law as put down by God? But, 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 but in Thomas Jefferson's day, you didn't, you didn't have corporations in the same sense you do now. He was probably talking about a, 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 a one-man Legal and by the way, the blacksmith and what have yeah. you, you know, it's, yeah. it's I, I don't think I, I think that question is just as relevant but, today as it was then. Right, but 
you know, if life was easy, then we would all be millionaires, and we're not millionaires. Um, you know, one of the best classes I took in law school was the law and religion class. I actually took two classes. I took Jewish Israel, uh, Jewish um, Christian law, um, and, and I was the only uh, Christian in the class. Well, and I then, am. Yeah, well, it, it, it was a very interesting class. And then I also took a uh, law and religion class. And it was enlightening to see the different arguments that people make in support of religious freedom, but also in support of saying that the government um, has the right to come in. And I would encourage people to look at those classes because there are arguments on both sides. And in looking at the arguments, again, for the ACA, I'm going to say it again, they're going to come out and say it stays with the individual. But I, I want to go to Alan Moore. Alan Moore, I, I can say you're, you're married to a, uh, a, a reverend, a Christian, Christian, Christian minister, a reverend. Uh, that, in your view, okay, does the violation of the civil law of Obamacare or the violation of God's law, do, where, do you, where do you draw the line? Well, you know, I, I, I've, I've, I've given this history. I've talked about this three-pronged test. I think that, that there's this delicate balancing act in the, in, the, in the Social Security case, in the peyote case. The Supreme Court said, religious uh, freedom be damned, you have to follow the law in these particular cases because there is a compelling national need. I don't see the compelling need in this case because I think there are other options that are available. So I think the court may decide that it fails the three-prong test in this particular case, which doesn't mean that I think that and, and I think that there are times, though, where the where the where the where the government has to prevail. We don't want anarchy. And anybody who says this is my faith, it's a new faith, it's an old faith. We're not going to do this. We're not going to do that. You could have uh, an inability to govern. So I think there has to be, the, you know, again this balancing act. But I wouldn't be surprised if uh, if 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 the court finds a way to give some rights to the Hobby Lobby owners. Well, we're, we're, going to, we're going to take a look at that next week, probably. Hopefully, we'll get some sort of decision down from the Supreme Court. Uh, when we do, this will obviously be a topic of discussion. Again, it's a great discussion. Uh, but when we come back, we're going to go to another esoteric discussion. Uh, does D.C. ignore the public priorities of the American voter? Is D.C. that deaf? We're going to talk about that. You're talking about the city of D.C.? No, I'm talking about polit politicians, Congress, White House. Is Washington that deaf to the public priorities of the American voter? And I'm not talking about your hearing aid now. So when we come back, we're going to talk about that. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital. By the way, it is happy hour. And we'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. Happy Hour on Backroom Politics is sponsored by Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., America's premier cigar tavern. Stay with us as the roundtable continues 
after we order our drinks, order our cigars, and get ready for the second hour of Backroom Politics. Stay with us. We'll be back in two minutes. Shelley's back room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is the second hour of Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. And we're going to talk about another theoretical topic. Uh, in a very interesting op-ed put out by the Washington Post last, uh, what was it? Uh, oh, it was just yesterday, it came out. Matt Grossman, who is a political scientist out at Michigan State University, he's the author of Artists of the Possible, Governing Networks and American Policy Change since 1945, basically asks the question, how policy, or basically poses the question, how policymakers ignore the public's priority. He starts off by saying, quote, if in any event stood a chance of galvanizing policymakers by focusing public opinion and media coverage, the December 2012 shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School had all the hallmarks. The horrific killing of 26 people, including many young children, and alarmed the public, the media, and policymakers across partisan and ideological lines. He goes on to talk about how all of the public, uh, all the public's priorities and all of the media's priorities in addressing gun control as an issue, basically the policymakers went away and just said they ignored it for, for many instances. Uh, but it brings up a bigger question, though, as we look at the Hobby Lobby case, as we look at gun control, as we look at federal spending, it seems today more than ever in today's partisan demagoguery-based Congress and politic, uh, political nature that D.C., in fact, does it ignore the public's priorities? 
Congressman Al, I'm going to start with you. <clears throat> this is a much more complicated issue than whether it's ignored or not, uh, because, because well, it's just so complicated. Let me make this suggestion. If, if we had a rule, like some countries do, that everybody had to vote, you would see the power of the NRA, for example, reduce enormously. The public, I think, wants some kind of rational gun control, not gun abandonment, but control. And the reason that they don't get it and the reason they are ignored is that the NRA will come after their congressman and, and trash him uh, and throw him out of office because a lot of those people who would like to see something done don't vote. And the congressman knows they don't vote, and they know that the NRA does and, uh, and influences a lot of votes. But, so, so oh, go ahead. That's, well, that's just one of the complexities. But, it, but, but Professor Grossman talks about, out of all the major subjects that Washington's dealt with, Bob, is that there's very little correlation between the public agenda and the public outcry versus significant policy changes. Is this a matter of it's D.C.'s deaf ear, or is it just a matter of D.C. doesn't care, or has politics gotten so bad that we can't come up with significant policy changes? Your third point is, I think, the most correct. I think the problem is not that Washington has a deaf ear. I mean, we, there's legislation introduced all the time on, on many, many major issues. What happens is that, that we have lost the ability in our Congress today, and it's probably partly because of the way we, we, we have redistricted and, and made so many districts very supportive of one party as opposed to the other. Uh, we have a situation where uh, the, the, the Congress is, in a, is unable to find ways to settle problems negotiate, work out, a, work out a solution that, that works, and both parties, at least the majority of the Congress, can support it. And, and once we have lost that ability, we have lost not, we, it isn't that we don't care to solve the problems, it's we refuse to solve the problems. Carl Tubin. Let's, let's take, uh, three, <clears throat> let's take uh, three issues. One we've already discussed, gun control. Gun control laws because of the NRA. <clears throat> uh, immigration. People want immigration reform in this country. Most people want immigration reform in this country. And, you know, we it's been introduced, it's passed the Senate, uh, that the House said, oh, we're not going to take it. Then they said, well, we're going to do a piecemeal. It still hasn't been done. And infrastructure. We have, we all know, we have bridges, we have uh, roads, we have everything falling apart <clears throat> and yet we can't get an infrastructure bill we can't they've suggested infrastructure bank we can't even get that and these things are needed period Denise crap to that end I'm glad you brought up infrastructure there was a new organization that was created today it's the American um, Alliance or the Alliance for American competitiveness uh, it, it's um, being chaired by uh, the CEO of Caterpillar 
and Haley Barber is involved, and we've got Burlington Northern, you have Dow, you've got a lot of really big companies out there. And they've come together to start lobbying Congress for infrastructure changes. They've said, look, this is a bipartisan issue. Our infrastructure is crumbling, um, and we need the infrastructure to be rebuilt. So if we're going to increase our exports and increase our imports, we need the underlying infrastructure which we use to do that to be improved. Uh, so it, it'll be very interesting to see what these members do and how they put pressure on their own members of Congress. But is that necessarily a public priority? I mean, Absolutely. Well, no, well, wait a minute. I'm, I'm talking, when I talk about public priorities, I'm talking about public outcries. We, we, we don't hear the outcry for infrastructure that we do in, let's say, uh, Obamacare or gun control. Congressman Alves. It doesn't mean that you're a non-Democrat, small d, Democrat, when you suggest that there is something imperfect about the way the public goes about presenting its interests. For example, <clears throat> let's go down to the local level. Talk to any county commissioner in a rural and say no matter how, how you publicize it or how many public meetings you have to say you're going to vacate a street, you don't hear anything from anybody until you vacate it, and then they decide they don't like it. So it's, it's, sometimes it's a little hard to know what the public wants. And I think probably that most Americans, uh, certainly like me, frankly get concerned about the street in front of their house and maybe their alley and maybe uh, the road up to, to work and don't realize that bridges and highways and railroad bridges are falling down all over the country. That's one of the reasons that government needs to take the lead in some areas and follow the public's wishes in other areas. But Alan Moore, <coughs> taking infrastructure or taking any of the major public priorities that we're hearing in the media or at town hall meetings or even around the tables at places like Shelley's, you know, the public outcry calls for major policy changes that seem to be elusive here in today's political climate in Washington, D.C. I challenge the notion that there's a lot of public outcry all on one side of any issue. It, 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 in any issue you can talk about, there are pretty deep divides in this country. People who identify as Republican uh, have views that are quite different from people who identify as Democrats. There's lots of crossover. Then there's, of course, that old group that refer, calls themselves independent that's sort of m moving back and forth. And, you know, the, the people around this table are, are not on the far extreme of either side. Um, but but uh, I, I challenge the underlying premise that there are these that the, these national public priorities that the, that the Congress uh, and the President are ignoring, they are try, they're, they're, they're trying to figure out how to improve the economy, which is the source of the greatest level of fear right now in, 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 on the part of most Americans. If they don't have a job, they want a job. If they have a job, they want to keep the job. If they've got a pretty good job, they want to keep that job and be able to put savings away and pay for their kids' school. They want to be safe. I mean, there's a whole host of things that, that, that people care about and deep, deep divisions on how much money 
we should spend on those things and where that money should come from. So we end up with, with, with this kind of stalemate that, 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 uh, that, has its, that has its roots in the, different, in, the, in the lack of consensus, the lack of emergency, and then, of course, in the fact that as long as you keep your voters happy or don't anger them too much, you have a better chance at, at, at holding on to your position, and it makes it that much harder to do so. Congressman now. I'll show you a couple of issues and see if, if the, if the uh, premise of the fellow who wrote the article really holds true. One, abortion. <clears throat> I'm not quite sure who's winning. Each side has won some. The fact is that there is no clear... <coughs> demonstration, no clear idea of where the American public wants to go. Some of it really wants to go one way and some of it is absolutely, and it leaves the elected officials in a position of not knowing what the public wants. They know what some of their... But one, one would argue... The, 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 the second thing, and then I'll shut up and uh, we can discuss this. Uh, I am surprised at how swiftly, no pun intended, gay rights are moving in this country. Uh, I would have bet even a year ago that we wouldn't be where we are today. Now, <clears throat> where we are today, you may approve of or you may not, but my God, we're there. And it looks like it's not slowing down. Uh, so it's a little hard to say that government isn't responding to that felt need on the part of the public. But uh, let's go back to abortion and, and go back to gay rights. You know, when we look at abortion, it, 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 you know, going off of the premise from Professor Grossman out in Michigan State and his op-ed, we look at abortion. Abortion has since changed and gone back and forth. Uh, if you look back 10 years ago, the pro-life movement had a stronger popularity poll over fifty percent than the pro than the uh, I'm sorry the, the pro choice the pro choice had over fifty percent and the pro life segment was under that margin. That's right. Today, I've seen polls as recent as a couple of months ago that shows fifty five percent of Americans believe in pro life that abortion is out of control in this country. It it, it just seems that it there's a very heavy pendulum here. Alan Moore. Yeah, here, here again, you gotta get you gotta dig into the details. Abortion is a really interesting example because you've got a group on the left and a group on the right. If, if you will, the group on the right says abortion never ever. The group on the left don't mess with the rights of women under any circumstance. Most people are not on one of those extremes anymore. Most people are somewhere in between where they say and here's where the tilt comes to the, if you will, the, the, the more restrictive side, we can call it the pro-life side, which says abortion but only in certain kinds of situations and not after a time in the neighborhood of six months, 24 weeks. Some people want shorter than that. So that's where all the action is in the States. That's where all the movement is, sort of defining those nuances. They're, they're not saying no, never, and they're not saying yes, always, uh, although there are still groups that, that believe that. The action is out in the middle. 
But, but we all, you know, but going back to Congressman Al's other point, we look at gay rights, for example. Gay rights is now upwards of 70% in favor of gay marriage versus 15 years ago where we saw a very heavy divide of traditional marriage versus gay marriage. The, there, there's, there's, the middle is not as convenient when it comes to gay rights. You either give them or you don't. But now, for a while, you know, there, were, there was a movement towards civil unions where people would say, and people in that, in that movement argue whether a civil union was a meaningful thing. I mean, obviously it was compared to nothing, but once they realized that it was kind of a, 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 of a difference without a distinction, then it was, let's, let's go all the way. Young people, I mean, there's this huge demographic difference, but young people are saying, yeah, who cares, let them. And a lot of older people are saying, yeah, you know, you think about it, fine. And well, let me dovetail off of Alan's comment, Bob Heinzo. With that being said, we still have not seen significant policy changes, with, with, the, with the, maybe the exception of gay marriage, which has largely been done at the state level. Mm -hmm. We have not seen significant policy changes into one way or the other coming out of Washington, even though those segments are very vocal. Gun control is another situation. Let's not talk about gun control, but a lot of these social issues are being handled very effectively at the state level. And that, it's, that is, I think, a, a reasonable way to do it. Uh, consider how different uh, Massachusetts or California looks at something than, let's say, Texas or Alabama does. And I think that's, that's the way the country is. It's a very big country. It's very diverse. And we're always going to have that diversity. I think we're, it's very wise that the Congress, in effect, stays out of things like that. Those things, a lot of the social issues are best handled in a local community. A local a state is a good way to do it. Well, let, let's, take, let's take fiscal spending. Let's well, take a, a definite yeah. one like fiscal spending. Well, that is a prime example where you have a definitive set of outcries of saying, look, Regardless of what I believe, either pro-Democrat or pro-Republican, we are in an economic crisis. We still have yet to see significant policy changes, even though the public well, outcry is out there. Me, with Bob Hines and then Congressman Al. You know, look, Social Security is the best example I know of idiocy all over the place. I mean, everybody knows that if we keep going, we'll change a thing. I think it's by 2026, Social Security is going to be basically broke because the, the, the costs are higher than we can afford at this stage the way we're doing it. We have to do a variety of things with respect to Social Security, and the longer we wait, the tougher it gets. And it seems to me that everybody on Capitol Hill knows they have to change, but they don't want to do it, and they say, hey, I won't be here you know, a 10 years from now, and I don't care. Because I don't want to be in a position of saying to anybody, you're going to get a little, you know, you can, you're not going to lose your arm in benefits. You might lose one pinky, one joint on one pinky. But nobody wants to say that because they, you're cutting my Social Security or you're making me get less benefits. Congress for now. <laughs> I, think, I think that's exactly right, that... Uh, the public sometimes can't figure out what it wants. It certainly wants Social Security to be funded 
you know, most most people were on Social Security funded at, at the rates they said we were promised. Whether that's what FDR had in mind or not is another point. Uh, and, and yet, they want to cut spending. Now, they don't want to cut defense. And they don't want to cut Social Security. And they don't want to cut pensions. They apparently don't even want to cut Saturday mail delivery. So there's a sense in which the Congress is in fact responding to what the public really wants. What the, I, I remember being in an AARP thing where they really told me how desperately they needed an increase in this, that, the other thing, and then having a guy pull me aside at the end, and he says, he says now, by the way, he said, I noticed that the Ways and Means Committee is taking this up. Don't let them do anything that will hurt my oil stock. <laughs> you have oil stock? You know, I mean, so, so that part of the reason that people get the feeling that the government and politicians are not responding to them. There are two basic reasons. The NRA poses one. Once in a while, somebody can get so strong on a narrow area that they buffalo all of Capitol Hill, and in fact, they, the, 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 the politicians there are going to ignore the public in favor of the special interest. That does happen. The other one is that the public, frankly, hasn't decided what it wants, and the Congress is a little uh, reluctant to get in there and pick sides when they don't know really what most of their constituents want. What, what they really want, you know, and, 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 and what I mean by that is an example I gave just before. <clears throat> they, they want to cut spending, but they don't want to cut Social Security or, or, or defense. You know, what do you do with that? Carl Tubin? Unfortunately, what this country reacts to is an event. If you had three major bridges fall apart in three successive days, one in New York, one in California, and one in Chicago, all of a sudden there'll be a, and everybody starts looking around and looking at their bridges, all of a sudden there'll be a push in Congress to get a billion dollars uh, to fix the bridges and, fix and start with the infrastructure. Well, at least in the three places you just mentioned. <laughs> right. That's right. But it could be it could be a wider thing. But we we have to have a crisis well, before we do something. And it, uh, Congressman, Allen, I agree with that. But how many schools have to get shot up? How many people have to get shot up before we override the NRA's stranglehold on the issue? Now, not all issues have that. And I, I don't think public works, you know, the highways have that kind of a problem. But uh, it's still there for some issues. Let me ask Ellen more this question, though. That it sounds like to me it's not so much the deaf ears of Washington. It's almost sounding like it is the soundbite-driven uninformed electorate that can't get its act together and therefore Washington's held at bay by what the, the electorate says is the outcry. We, we, we've made many comments around this table about our electorate. Uh, my, my term is that we have a low information voter um, yeah. and, and, and 
best exemplified for me by the argument against Obamacare, of which, as we know, I'm not a fan, but my favorite argument is keep the government out of our health care and don't touch Medicare. <laughs> and this disconnect in the minds of people that Medicare is the one of the biggest government programs we have out there. And, and they want stuff and they don't want to give up anything. Um, they want to tax the other guy, not themselves. And we are stymied until there's a crisis. Now, we do respond to certain crises. The, 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 the Twin Towers get bombed. We have Sandy Hook. We have hurricanes and we race out and, and send money to the, to the to the targeted area, but but sadly, before we're going to, you know, I worry that, that before we tackle Medicare, Social Security, and the Disability Insurance Trust Fund, which is the one that will be bankrupt in just a couple of years, then comes Medicare. Social Security's got a little more time. They all need reform. Doing reform is complicated. It is really complicated because there are, there are so many ways to do it, and the people who are going to feel it scream, and the people who would broadly benefit from us getting this stuff um, onto, a, onto a better track don't understand. It's not a priority. They stay off to the side. We're frozen still again by screaming people wanting to protect what they have. Yeah, young people generally say it's not going to be there when I get there, right. so they dismiss it as an issue. Right. Denise Crack. Okay, let's go to what Carl just said. When you start talking about you need an incident, you're right. Um, there was an incident in the summer of 2010, and that was the Deepwater Horizon spill. That's where millions of gallons of oil spilled into the Gulf Coast. And there was legislation. Mm. It was never passed into law. What legislation? Exactly. There was no legislation. Yes, there was. Gene Taylor was pushing legislation. There was a lot of movement, and people said, aha, we're going to clean up what's going on. But you know what happened that year? There was a turnover in Congress. And, and so I'm going to start talking about inside baseball, for those of you who are listening. We've got, we've got a couple of problems. First, when you have an issue, you need to make sure that the legislation that you want to address the issue is passed. And sometimes that can happen in a couple of months. Sometimes it takes about a year or two. But if you have a change in Congress, then sometimes you have a change in priorities. And that's what happened with Deepwater Horizon. And I bring that up because we're now at the 25th anniversary of Exxon Valdez. You're taking my story, by the way. Oh, dear. Huh? Yeah. All right. Stop. Okay. Uh, I can do that. Stop. Uh, first. No. No. It's mine now. It always has been. That's mine. That's my old industry, for crying out loud. I know. Anyway. No, no. But, but Get him the next round. Yeah. Oh, uh, see? Uh, but no, I mean, but Bob Hines, <clears throat> looking at it historically, you, Bob Hines, have been around Congress for the better part of 40 years. You Don't age me. <laughs> it's hard. They can hear you. Bob started when he was 12. Much, much longer than that. Much longer than that. I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. But in your 40 years of being around Congress, you've seen dynamic changes in leadership, priorities, and but the one thing I would guess that you have not seen, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that it almost seems like, and, and maybe Professor Grossman isn't correct when he says that the ears are deaf, it just seems more and more that we're dealing with government and Congress when talking about enacting sizable changes in policy 
they're reactionary versus proactive. Congress hears, you know, and knows what the problems are. I don't care, you, any, you cross the board, whether you're talking uh, retirement programs or medical programs or infrastructure programs or whatever they are, Congress knows what the solutions are. If you've been in Congress for half a dozen years, you know what the answer is to how to fix Social Security. You know what the answer is to do what, what we need to do with infrastructure. You understand those problems. The fact of the matter is, what happens is, when you start trying to solve the problems, a whole bunch of people in the Congress don't want to do it. And they are adamant. And the question is, you know, how do you, how do you get a bipartisan majority to move forward on a piece of legislation that needs to be done? So you start to find out, how are we going to negotiate? Who do I have to negotiate with? Well, start the committee system. Yes, let me. That's the answer. All right, hold that thought, Bob. I want you to take a quick break. We're going to continue this discussion in the last segment because I think it's a, definitely a subject that's got a lot of legs. We're going, to, we're going to take a quick break. This is Backroom Politics live from Shelley's Backroom in Washington, D.C. on Blog Talk Radio. We will be back in two minutes. Stay with us. Everybody knows Shelley's Backroom for its corporate events, it's happy hours, it's famous campfire wings and spurred cigars and drinks. But what you didn't know is that Shelly's is open during the weekend too. In fact, Shelly's back room on the weekends even has a non-smoking section. You can bring your family, your kids, enjoy the same campfire wings and same glorious food that you enjoy during the week, but without the famous Shelly's cigar environment. Also during the weekend, it's football season. That means a lot of the regulars come down and enjoy their drinks and their favorite cigars, all while watching their favorite local teams, whether it's the Ravens, the Redskins, on several HD screens throughout the place. So remember, Shelly's Back Room. It's not just for happy hours anymore. 1331 F Street, the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., official sponsor of Backroom Politics. On the elevation, on the shelf, they misbehaving. Saving my love for you and you, especially you, yeah. I know for certain the one I love. I'm through with flirting, it's you that I'm thinking of. Ain't misbehaving, saving all my love for you. Like that honor in a corner. Shelly's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital. 
Washington, D.C., live on Blog Talk Radio. Hey, and uh, for a final segment, I'm taking uh, moderator's privilege. And the discussion we're having uh, stems from the segment before where uh, Professor Grossman, uh, a professor up at Michigan State University, a well-known published uh, political scientist, uh, Professor Grossman asks the question and, and talks about the idea of how policymakers ignore the public's priorities. And he, he provides very, very solid data on the situation, but it, it seems that we've talked about this subject, about the deaf ears in Congress, and it, see, it doesn't seem that they're missing the priorities of the American public. It, there's a lot of factors involved in this. This is a great discussion. We're going to continue it into our final segment. But, Bob, you were talking about, uh, you were talking about uh, the committee process in Congress and how it's been ignored and how it's coming back. Go ahead with your thoughts. Well, uh, Al and I, I guess, uh, feel very strongly about this. And I'm sure Alan does, too, having spent so many time. And I guess Denise as well. We're, yeah. We've all had a lot of time up there. Well, Carl would, too. Yeah. And yeah. the fact of the matter what, is... What, am I chopped liver? No. Go ahead, Bob. Put your cue on it. Whatever, whatever you are, sure you're there. you mention it. Yeah. Oh, go away. <laughs> go away. But, you know, the fact is that Congress is, is dysfunctional because they have changed the way they do business. It used to be that when there was a matter that was a significant matter and it, it was, it was, its jurisdiction belonged in a particular committee, the committee went to work on that piece of legislation and they refined it and they worked over it and they found a solution that was a, 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 a jointly reached decision generally with, with members of both... Jointly released delusion. No, <laughs> no, solution. Oh, I see. Oh, okay. Solution. And they found a way to get a piece of legislation that the bipartisan majority of the committee could find is a reasonable way to do business. And that was true in both the House and in the Senate. Today, we have leadership pushing things or stopping things. We have both parties struggling with extremists on both sides. And... What, what is known as regular order in Congress, i.e. the committees working over a bill, refining it, reporting it out, and it goes to the floor for debate and discussion and amendment. And now we're getting things that in the Senate, it doesn't move unless Harry Reid likes it. You can't even be, if you're a Republican, you can't even offer an amendment. But So let me get, just to paraphrase what I'm hearing, it sounds to me that part of the deaf ears here in D.C., is the fact that Congress has gotten away from regular order. Is that yes. accurate, Bob? I would, yes. I would say that Al and I would... And I still Alan, Alan Moore, I want to go to you. You've yeah. been around... I mean, you, you've been in, in Senate staff longer than you were actually an SES or appointee. Do you agree with Bob's assertion? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've made that point here way too many times for, for most people. <laughs> <laughs> and... and uh, uh, for all the talk about Republican delay, um, if, which is a perfectly legitimate subject, and there's plenty of delay, um, that, that, uh, that Harry Reid brings a lot of this onto himself. But it's not just Harry Reid, one person. It's the changing nature of the politics of the Senate. Um, uh, you've, got, you've got a majority now who I think 
or close to a majority who are in their first term. It, it really has, has changed a lot. And so when we talk about regular order, we're talking about a concept that most of the people up there have never experienced. So if we ever get back to regular order, it's going to be a major re-education process or new education process for a lot of these folks, particularly Democrats who have never served in a minority. Um, but but it, it's, it's a Senate, huge problem in, in the Senate. Senate. In, 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 in the Tea Party. Yeah, in the, the House. House. Right. Lots and lots of newbies, too. Carl Tubin. Well, as, as we've discussed in the last two weeks, uh, <clears throat> Senator Schumer and Senator Alexander are trying to forge something in the Senate, and they've got, they've got people behind them where they're going to try to get back to regular order and have people talk to one another and, and have bills be fashioned the way, the old way, the way it should be. Well, you could offer floor amendments. Right. Or we could right. do business. Right. Unfortunately, <clears throat> I don't see the same thing happening in the House. Now, maybe I'm not listening hard enough. But I just don't see the same thing happening in the House of Representatives. I don't I, either. But, it never did. But I'll tell you that, and I never did. Congressman Al. No, I say it never did. Yeah, the House yeah. never did. But, but, but John Boehner is a man who I think, if it weren't for having one foot nailed to the floor by his ultra-right wing, I think he would be a part of that kind of a solution. He has been before. Uh, he's, he's, a, he's got a long career in the House, and he's made many compromises, including with Teddy Kennedy on an education bill and what have you. So I, I tend not to think that he is the problem. I think he is the solution, uh, but the, the, the right wing is the, are, are the problem, is the problem, whatever. Bob Hines. I think that Al is exactly right, and I think that the... I think that... Uh, Last October, when uh, the Tea Party forced a uh, series of votes uh, to defund uh, Obamacare, the, the Affordable Care Bill, uh, I think the Tea Party got a little bit of education. I remember, uh, and I bet Alan does too. I, I remember the, the election in '74 and '76 when you see huge number of of what I would call lefties, uh, they're like the Tea Party people of today, came into Congress, particularly in the House, and, uh, and just, it was impossible to do any business. And over a few elections, some of them began to learn, and some of them got defeated. And the same thing is happening with the Tea Party people. And I think, finally, uh, the, the, the Speaker, at this at this point, finally is, is for the first time in a couple of years has control of his caucus. Not to the point where he can do what he wants to do every time, but he's got enough control that enough of the Tea Party people are willing to move a little bit, and we're get beginning to get to the situation where the majority party is able to offer rational points of view, and a lot, some Democrats are willing to join them, and they're beginning to get. Ability to actually do regular business, regular order, and beginning to get things to be able to move to the floor, which have some bipartisan support. Slowly but surely, it's getting there. It takes a few years, but it's getting there. Congressman Al, it's interesting. We started out talking about 
the public feeling and the, the, the author that you quote uh, saying that we don't do the public's business, we don't do what the public wants. I think that was the fundamental perception of the Tea Party people, that the government wasn't doing what the public wanted. So they came back and they were, by God, going to do what the public wanted, as they saw it. And they have basically been the major reason we haven't been doing anything the public wants. But let me, let me jump in here, though. <clears throat> when you bring up the Tea Party, it sounds like when they come collectively and saying, well, we're doing what the public wants, it's their public, not the public as a whole. Right. Is that accurate? That, that, is, that is accurate. Let me tell you a story. When I was a disc jockey in Ellensburg, uh, when I was in... All right, I'm going to enforce the same thing on you that I do on Carl. Is it this decade? Yes. <laughs> All right. <laughs> oh, my God, is he stealing? You're telling me a story? <laughs> no, I've already gotten that one thing, I just lied to him. But <coughs> we know. Pay yeah. no attention. You're a former congressman. It's in your blood. <laughs> I'm sorry. Go ahead, King. I'm congressman now. All right. I got a phone call from a guy who says, you never play Raw Acuff. And we were, we were a, called a middle-of-the-road station at the time, Sinatra and Perry Como and Joe Stafford and that kind of stuff. And he says, you don't play Raw Acuff. He says, if you played Raw Acuff, everybody in this valley would be listening to you. Why, all my friends like Roy Acuff. And da 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 The point is that it's very easy to assume that because you and your friends all agree on something, that everybody agrees on something. Now, any politician who falls for that isn't going to be in office very long. You've got to understand that there are other people and other views. And when you understand that there are other people and other views, you realize the need for compromise. You realize the need, you know, to, to, to pay attention to what other people think. I'm sorry, Roy Acuff. I'm laughing at the only Roy Acuff <laughs> remark and comment and reference that we've had in three years on this show. Personally, no. I like the Southern accent. I thought that was <laughs> 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 Watch out, here comes Paracles. <laughs> oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Just, I'm sorry, Ellen, is it in this millennium? I think Roy Acuff, I think I've told that story three times on this program. Alan Moore. No, I... I uh, can I you was, do Roy Acuff? I cannot. I, I, he's before my time. Um, I, I, uh, before anybody's time. I wanted to, rem I wanted to say something about the, about the Tea Party just to remind everybody that this movement that helped bring them forward was 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 not so much frustration at the priorities of the Congress, it was fury. It was deep-seated anger mm -hmm. that the country and individual homes, savings, jobs had disappeared, and, when, and, and the easiest place to blame was Washington, D.C. Those idiots who are padding their own pockets so the perception would go are making these decisions to help their friends so the argument would go have 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 ruined us have cost us our job our kids our jobs our kids hopes for a job our potential for a new job 
we're, our houses are underwater, we're losing our houses, our retirement savings, is such as they were, are considerably less. We're going to go up there and shake things up and say, hell no, we're not going to take it anymore. It wasn't, it wasn't a policy agenda, per se. Here's what we need to do to fix it. It was, here's what we need to get even. Get even with those people who ruined us and, and don't cut deals. You have to say no to those, those lying, thieving people up there. And they elected folks who shared some of that point of view, who didn't have, in many cases, much experience in government of the give and take, of compromise. And, uh, and we're still suffering the aftermath, although a lot of those guys have been coming around. They had to learn, oh, gosh. But what you just said kind of belies the theory of, in the article that... I agree. No, that's right. I, I mean, I've taken, I've, I've taken issue with it in a couple of ways. I said, pick, show me some issues, because a lot of these issues, are, they're deep divisions. And, you know, Bob was earlier talking about everybody knows the, the, the solution on Social Security. No, nobody knows the solution. We know options. We know what options are on the table. Coming together and getting agreement is really hard. There's a whole group of people who want to increase Social Security benefits, and then a group that says we've got to cut them a little bit, and then there's a group that says we've got to increase taxes on Social Security. Forget all the details. Those are fundamentally different concepts. I, I, would, now. I, I would defend Bob only in this regard, because I, I agree with you that he kind of overstated his case. What I think everybody knows is you got to sit down with everybody and work it out. Work it out. So let me get this straight, though. Let me get this straight. It, it, it sounds like to me that what we're saying is it's not so much the deaf ears. It is the lack of compromise that has been recent that has prevented us from having major policy decisions being put into play at least. Combine, is that accurate? Combine that with the lack of a committee system, and you've got. And combine that with the misinformed or underinformed electorate, we got a real problem. Yeah, but there's also Carl Tubin. There's one other thing that we've discussed, and that is that, that people on committees, Republicans, and Democrats, don't have a chance to meet each other socially, so they can get to know each other better. Yeah. And, yeah. and and find out what you know what you're thinking, what you're thinking. Um, Hillary Clinton comes to the Senate. She goes around and meets 99 other senators and exchanges views. That's hardly done anymore. Yeah, and, and, and it's important because you can't compromise with somebody unless you trust them. Right. You cannot trust them if you don't know them. Right. right. And a lot of members don't know each other. Right. Correct, correct. Well, with that, with that going right now, we're going to take this opportunity. It is 10 minutes before the end of the show. A uh, great discussion, by the way. Great discussion. I hope it was informative to everybody out there listening to us this week. Uh, but now it's time for my favorite part of the show. It is time for Tell Me a Story, where we talk about news, innuendo, rumor, and buzz going inside the Beltway, outside the Beltway, at your local city hall, at highest levels of Congress. And I'm going to start with Alan Moore. Alan Moore, tell me a story. Yeah, I want to take on my favorite recent target, um, Harry Reid. Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid. Hey! Hey! Mayor Rahm Emanuel once, once, once said uh, in, in a not very well-timed way, never let a crisis uh, go to waste. 
So whenever something's happening, try to add some other stuff to it. And when two weeks ago the, the Senate was trying to pass a bill of permitting some sanctions on Ukraine, it was just before we knew what was happening in Crimea. It hadn't fully finished yet. The, uh, what the Senate tried to do is not only pass some sanctions, but they wanted to add some stuff. They wanted to add some IMF, International Monetary Fund, reforms to this sanctions bill. And a bunch of senators said, bad idea. There were some Republicans who said, good idea. And it's it, something that needs to be done, not necessarily on that vehicle. But the House said, don't bother. Don't send that to us. We're not going to do it. Reed insisted on moving forward with that. It didn't happen at the time. The Senate went out. And then yesterday on the Senate floor, this guy, Harry Reid, Senate Majority Leader, got up and said, gee, you know, if the Republicans hadn't stopped us a couple of weeks ago when we were ready to do sanctions, you never know, but we might have changed the course of history over there. It was outrageous and ridiculous comment that he's been ripped apart for, but it's just one more embarrassment that Harry Reid has, has put on the shoulders of his fellow Democrats. Um, he, uh, he's losing more than a step, and it's time for him to go. Wow. Okay. Good, good answer. Uh, and you're leaving. And I'll leave it. Before, All right. Before we I get to be here for your You know, I want you to drop the mic and go, good night, Cleveland. But you didn't do that. Okay. <laughs> Denise is walking off stage. Thanks, Alan. Denise Krupp, tell me a story. Last week, there were two decisions that came out on uh, regarding military sexual assault. There was one case that was uh, concerning General Sinclair down in Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And there was another case up at the Naval Academy. Um, but what folks don't know was there was a very interesting op-ed that was written by a naval, uh, written by a uh, former Army spouse. Her name is Chris Johnson, and she has been advocating for a change in retirement benefits, such that uh, the spouses of retirees would be able to get uh, benefits if their husbands are convicted. And, and the reason I'm pushing and I support Ms. Johnson is that in the past, military retiree spouses who want to come forward and say, my husband or my wife is doing something illegal, were told, go home, sit down, shut up, and pretend it's not happening because you want to protect your own retirement benefits. Well, that prevented a lot of people from talking. So kudos to Ms. Chris Johnson for coming forward and saying, we need to be changing the system because we need people to come forward who can tell the truth and who don't feel that their retirement benefits are being hampered if and when they do so. Carl, tell me a story. Is it in this decade? Yes. Good. There we go. We're making progress. Matter of fact, it was on Sunday. Holy crap. Real progress. Go ahead, Carl. Mitt Romney suggested that he had the power to see into the future, and he would have stopped Russia from invading Crimea if he had been elected in 2012. Though, if he could really see in the future, he wouldn't have run for president. Okay. <laughs> All right. There we go. I, there you I, go. I have, All credit, right. I have to credit Seth Meyers said that. <laughs> oh, good. Okay, yeah. A, a tribute. Always a tribute here. Yes. Bob Hines, tell me a story. Um, next uh, Monday is the 31st of March, which is... Obamacare, big day. Um, originally, they were the Obama people said we're going to have eight million people, and we're going to have uh, 
uh, and they're not, they'll probably have between five and six. Uh, I hope they, I hope everything works for them. Secondly, uh, and they also thought that they would get 40% of the young people. They needed that be, to pay the bills to keep the insurance rates down. They're getting about 25%. So they're going to have a couple of million less than they'd like and they're going to have a significant uh, percentage uh, of young people who have not signed up. And it, it, it's just going to be another, uh, another ongoing um, difficulty because insurance rates are going to have to go up because they're, they're not going to get the money from the, uh, the, the young people that they need. And, you know, it's, you know, and, and it's unfortunate that the problem is, this, is getting as bad as this, but it's just another example of what happens when one party decides that they're going to write the bill and they don't invite the other party to help? Congressman Allen, tell me a story. Uh, we have already uh, mentioned uh, on this show that uh, the Supreme Court decided that corporations can have political views. <clears throat> Depending on how they make their judgment on the uh, the case of uh, what is it, the Ho-Hos or what's the name? Hobby Lobby. Hobby Lobby. Hobby Lobby. Depending on how they decide that, they might also say that corporations can have religious views. Now, if they can have political views and religious views equal to that of citizens, I think this is a very dangerous path we're following and uh, we won't know whether we've got a, a, a trend on the Supreme Court or not until that decision is made. Very good. Uh, this week, in fact tomorrow, marks the 25th anniversary of the Exxon Valdez oil spill where uh, Captain Joe Hazelwood puts the Exxon Valdez up on the rocks around Bly Reef causing one of the biggest environmental disasters in the country. Uh, CNN tonight at 10 o'clock has a very interesting documentary which includes the first official interview that Joe Hazelwood has ever given media on this subject. I invite people to watch it. Everybody vilify Joe Hazelwood. Uh, so many factors were involved as somebody who was intimately involved in that type of operation and the investigation following the Exxon Valdez, I got to tell you, it is a very interesting read. Don't vilify Joe Hazelwood until you watch that CNN show tonight. Uh, and it's also a call to Congress. Congress has been messing around with oil spill legislation for the past 20 years, 25 to be exact. Open 90 is now antiquated. After, BP, after the BP Deepwater Horizon oil spill in the Gulf two years ago, it is very, very evident that Congress needs to take action and move forward on improving oil spill response, oil spill preparedness and prevention policy. Somebody's got to take leadership. I urge Congress to move on that. And, uh, by the way, there's another fact I want to bring up before we close out. Um, in uh, Snohomish County, Washington. Snohomish County. Snohomish County, Washington, outside the little town of Osa, uh, is there's a tragedy unfolding as we speak. As of right now, there are 176 people missing in a mudslide that has affected that part of uh, the foothills in 
in, in, in central Washington state. The Red Cross is calling for donations and support. I urge you that you, that you go log on to redcross.org or any other NGO or, or uh, relief organization. Give your support. Keep the families and their friends and the residents of central Washington who have been affected by this mudslide in your prayers. Congressman Al, I know this is part of, your, part of the series in your district. I know that's got to be something that you're keeping a very watchful eye on. I, I, it was in my district, and I thank you very much for bringing it up. Yeah, we need to keep an eye on that. This is obviously something we may talk about next week, but it is a tragedy unfolding. Keep them in your thoughts and prayers, and donate if you can. On behalf of Congressman Al Swift, Bob Hines, Denise Kraft, Alan Moore, Carl Tubin, I'm your moderator, radio's Justin Russell. We'll be back here next Tuesday for the best political talk show you've never heard of, live from Room, 1331F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., Bob Hines. The place to be if you want to know what's going on. Absolutely. And by the way, you can follow us on the web at www.backroompolitics.org. You can also track us on Twitter at BackroomPolitics. And you can submit your comments to me, Justin, at BackroomPolitics.org. We'll see you next week, Radio Land. Have a great time. Bye-bye. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.